Section 21 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary the Second, Chapter 2, Part 3. The marriage of the Princess Anne took place at St. James's Chapel on St. Anne's Day, July 28th, Old Style, 1683, at 10 o'clock at night. Her uncle, Charles II, gave her away. Queen Catherine, the Duchess of York, and the Duke of York were present. Unlike the private marriage of the weeping Princess Mary, which took place in her own bedchamber, the bridal of Anne of York and George of Denmark was a bright nocturnal festivity, brilliant with light and joyous company. Most of the nobility, then in London, were present. The people took their part in the fete. They kindled their bonfires at every door, and in return, the wine conduits, shows and diversions were provided for them, and the bells of each church in London rang all night. The marriage was commemorated by a courtly pretender to literature, Charles Montague, subsequently Earl of Halifax, who perpetrated an ode in the truest style of Fustian, from which the only passages that bear any personal reference to the bride and bridegroom are here presented to the reader. What means this royal beauteous pair, this troop of youths and virgins heavenly fair? That does at once astonish and delight, great Charles and his illustrious brother here. No bold assassinate need fear. Here is no harmful weapon found. Nothing but Cupid's darts and beauty here can wound. See, see, how decently the bashful bride does bear her conquests, with how little pride she views that prince, the captive of her charms, who made the north with fear to quake, and did that powerful empire shake, before whose arms, when great Gustavus led, the frighted Roman eagles fled. The succeeding morning of the nuptials, the princess sat in state with her bridegroom to receive the congratulations of the courts of the foreign ambassadors, the Lord Mayor and Aldermen, and various public companies. Many politicians of the day rejoiced much that the Princess Anne was safely married to Prince George, because the death of Marie Therese, the Queen of France, left Louis XIV a widower only two days after these nuptials, and it was supposed that the Duke of York would have made great efforts to marry his daughter to that sovereign. King Charles settled on his niece by act of Parliament, £20,000 per annum, and from his own purse, purchased and presented to her for a residence, that adjunct to the Palace of Whitehall, which was called the Cockpit, formerly its theatre. This place was built by Henry VIII, for the savage sport which its name denotes. It had long been disused for that purpose, but had been adapted as a place of dramatic representation until the rebellion. It had been granted by royal favor, on lease, to Lord Danby, of whom it was now purchased. The cockpit appears to have been situated between the present horse guards and Downing Street, and it certainly escaped the great fire which destroyed the Palace of Whitehall, being on the other side of the way. The entry was from St. James's Park, which divided it from St. James's Palace, and as that was the town residence of the Duke of York, the vicinity to the dwelling of his beloved child was very convenient. When the establishment of the Princess Anne of Denmark was appointed by her royal uncle, Sarah Churchill, secretly mistrusting the durability of the fortunes of her early benefactress, the Duchess of York, 
expressed an ardent wish to become one of the ladies of the Princess Anne, who requested her father's permission to that effect. The Duke of York immediately consented, and the circumstance was announced by the princess in the following billet. The Princess Anne of Denmark to Mrs. Churchill The Duke of York came in just as you were gone, and made no difficulties, but has promised me that I shall have you, which I assure you is a great joy to me. I should say a great deal for your kindness in offering it, but I am not good at compliments. I will only say that I do take it extreme kindly, and shall be ready at any time to do you all the service that is in my power. Long years afterwards, Anne's favorite asserted that she only accepted this situation in compliance with the solicitations of her royal mistress. With what degree of truth, the above letter shows. In the same account of her conduct, Mrs. Churchill, then the mighty Duchess of Marlborough, describes the qualities she possessed, which induced the violent affection long testified for her by the princess. The first was the great charm of her frankness, which disdained all flattery. Next was the extreme hatred and horror that both she and the princess felt for Lady Clarendon, because that lady looked like a mad woman and talked like a scholar. This object of their mutual dislike was wife to the uncle of the princess, Henry Earl of Clarendon. She had been governess to the princess before her marriage with Prince George of Denmark, and was at present her first lady. The style in which Flora, Lady Clarendon, wrote was, as may be seen in the Clarendon letters, superior to that of any man of her day. Her letters are specimens of elegant simplicity. Therefore, the charge of scholarship was probably true. As to Mrs. Churchill's influence over the princess, she evidently pursued a system which may be often seen practiced in the world by dependents and inferiors. She was excessively blunt and bold to everyone but the princess, who, of course, felt that deference from a person, rude and violent to every other human creature, is a double distilled compliment. This complacence of the favorite only lasted until the Lady Anne was under the protection of her uncle and father. We shall see it degenerate by degrees into insulting tyranny. In the romance of her friendship, the Princess Anne renounced her high rank in her epistolatory correspondence with her friend. One day she proposed to me, says Sarah Churchill, that whenever I should be absent from her, we might, in our letters, write ourselves by feigned names, such as would import nothing of distinction of rank between us, Morley and Freeman were the names she hit on, and she left me to choose by which of them I would be called. My frank open temper naturally led me to pitch upon Freeman, and so the princess took the other. These names were extended to the spouses of the ladies, and Mr. Morley and Mr. Freeman were adopted by Prince George of Denmark and Colonel Churchill. Other nicknames were given to the father and family of the princess, and this plan was not only used for the convenience of the note correspondence, which perpetually passed between the friends, but it subsequently masked the series of dark political intrigues guided by Sarah Churchill in the Revolution. The following note was written a little before this system of equity was adopted, while it was yet in cogitation in the mind of Anne, who was then absent from her favorite, at the Palace of Winchester, where she was resting after she had accompanied her father, the Duke of York, in his yacht to review the fleet at Portsmouth. The Princess Anne to Lady Churchill, 
Winchester, September 20th, 1684. I writ to you last Wednesday from on board the yacht, and left my letter on Thursday morning at Portsmouth, to go by the post, to be as good as my word in writing to my dear Lady Churchill by the first opportunity. I was in so great haste when I writ, that I fear what I said was nonsense, but I hope you will have so much kindness for me as to forgive it. If you will not let me have the satisfaction of hearing from you again before I see you, let me beg of you not to call me your highness at every word, but to be as free with me as one friend ought to be with another. And you can never give me any greater proof of your friendship than in telling me your mind freely in all things, which I do beg you to do. And if ever it were in my power to serve you, nobody would be more ready than myself. I am all impatience for Wednesday, till when, farewell. While the Princess of Denmark was enjoying every distinction and luxury in England, her sister Mary led no such pleasant life at The Hague, where she either was condemned to utter solitude, or passed her time surrounded by invidious spies and insolent rivals. After the death of the noble Osory and the departure of her early friend, Dr. Ken, she had no one near her who dare protect her. Some resistance she must have made to the utter subserviency into which she subsequently fell, or there would have been no need of the personal restraint imposed on her from the years 1682 and 1684, when her mode of life was described in the dispatches of the French ambassador, de Vau, to his own court. Until now, the existence of the Princess of Orange has been regulated thus. From the time she rose in the morning till eight in the evening, she never left her chamber, except in summer, when she was permitted to walk about once in seven or eight days. No one had liberty to enter her room, not even her lady of honor, nor her maids of honor, of which she has but four. But she has a troop of Dutch, fils de chambre, of whom a detachment every day mount guard on her, and have orders never to leave her. In this irksome restraint, which, after allowing the utmost for the exaggeration of the inimical French ambassador, it is impossible to refrain from calling imprisonment, the unfortunate Princess of Orange had time sufficient to finish her education. She passed her time in reading or embroidering, and was even occupied with the pencil, for it is certain she continued to take lessons of her dwarf drawing master, Gibson, who had followed her to Holland for that purpose. He probably held a situation in her household, as the tiny mannequin was used to court service, having been page of the backstairs to her grandfather, Charles I. It may be thought that a princess who was a practical adept with the pencil would have proved subsequently a great patron of pictorial art as Queen of Great Britain and Ireland. Such hopes were not fulfilled. The persons in whose society Mary of England chiefly delighted were her best beloved friend and early playfellow, Miss, or according to the phraseology of that day, Mistress Anne Trelawney, then her favorite maid of honor, and her good nurse, Mrs. Langford, whose husband, a clergyman of the Church of England, was devotedly attached to her, being one of her chaplains. All were detested by the Prince of Orange, but no brutal affronts, no savage rudeness, could make these friends of infancy offer to retire from the service of his princess, when Dr. Ken did, who at last, finding he could do no good at the court of the Hague, retired to England, 
where he was raised to the important see of Bath and Wells. Dr. Ken was succeeded as almoner to the Princess of Orange by a very quaint and queer clergyman of the old world cavalier fashion called Dr. Koval. It was not very probable that the restless ambition of the Prince of Orange would permit his wedded partner to remain at the Palace of the Wood or at Deeran, surrounded by her loyalist chaplains, nurses, and dwarf pages of the court of Charles I, cherishing in her mind thoughts of the lofty and ideal past, of the poets, cavaliers, and artists of the old magnificent court of Whitehall. No, Mary's claims were too near the throne of Great Britain to permit him thus to spare her as an auxiliary. After he had grieved her by neglect, humbled her by the preference he showed for her women, and condemned her to solitude, for which she had little preference. His next step was to persecute her for all her family attachments, and insult her for her filial tenderness to her father. He assailed her affection for him by inducing her to believe him guilty of crimes which only the most daring political slanderers laid to his charge. Above all, William made a crime of the reverence his princess bore to her grandfather, Charles I, for whom he seems to have cultivated an implacable hatred, although in the same degree of relationship to himself as to Mary. The proceedings of the Prince of Orange, in breaking down his wife's spirit, according to the above system, were thus minutely detailed to her kinsman, Louis the Fourteenth, by his ambassador to the States, de Vau. They have printed an insolent book against the Duke of York in Holland, whom they accuse of cutting the throat of the Earl of Essex. The English envoy, Cudley, remonstrated. But it had no other effect than exciting Juryu to present this book publicly to the Prince of Orange as his own work. But the worst of all was that after this outrage on her father, the Princess of Orange was forced by her husband to go to hear Juryu preach a political sermon. Cudley, the English envoy, remonstrated so earnestly on the calumnies of Juryu and the conduct of the prince that he was no longer invited to The Hague. A few days afterwards, the princess was sitting in her solitary chamber on the anniversary of the death of her grandfather, Charles I. She had assumed a habit of deep mourning and meant to devote the whole of the day to fasting and prayer, as was her family custom when domesticated with her father and mother. Her meals were always lonely, and on this anniversary, she supposed that she might fast without interruption. The Prince of Orange came unexpectedly into her apartment, and looking at her mourning habit, scornfully bade her, in an imperious tone, Go and change it for the gayest dress she had. The princess was obliged to obey. He then told her he meant she should dine in public. Now it is not very easy to make a woman dine when she resolves to fast. The princess, pursues Deval, saw all the dishes of a state dinner successively presented to her, but dismissed them, one after the other, and ate nothing. In the evening, the Prince of Orange commanded her to accompany him to the comedy, where he had not been for several months, and which he had ordered on purpose. At this new outrage to her feelings, the princess burst into tears, and in vain entreated him to spare her, and excuse her compliance. This was the final struggle. From the 30th of January, 1684 or 5, there is no instance to be found of Mary's repugnance to any outrage effected by her husband against her family. 
The change, for some mysterious reason, was occasioned by the domestication of her cousin Monmouth at her court. The contest of parties in England had ended in the restoration of her father, the Duke of York, to his natural place in the succession, and Monmouth took his turn of banishment in Holland and Brussels. It was part of the policy of the Prince of Orange to receive this rival aspirant for the crown of Great Britain with extraordinary affection, insomuch that he permitted the princess the most unheard of indulgences to welcome him. The Prince of Orange, says Duval, was heretofore the most jealous of men. Scarcely would he permit the princess to speak to a man or even to a woman. Now he presses the Duke of Monmouth to come after dinner to her apartments to teach her country dances. Likewise, the Prince of Orange charged her, by the compliance she owed to him, to accompany the Duke of Monmouth in skating parties, this great frost. A woman in common life would make herself a ridiculous sight if she did as the Princess of Orange does, who is learning to glide on the ice with her petticoats trussed up to her knees, skates buckled on her shoes, and sliding absurdly enough, first on one foot and then on the other. The Duchess of Roland scruples not to accuse Mary of coquetry with the Duke of Monmouth. The strange scenes described by Duval were doubtless the foundation of her opinion. But what is still stranger, the literary Duchess considers that Mary gave some reason for scandal with Duval himself. William discovered, it seems, that an interview had taken place between his princess and this ambassador at the home of one of her Dutch maids of honor, Mademoiselle Trudaine. This lady was instantly driven from her service by the prince with the utmost disgrace. William's jealousy was probably a political one, and he dreaded lest some communication prejudicial to his views might take place between Mary and her father through the medium of the French ambassador. Duval himself does not mention the interview in his letters, nor show any symptom of vanity regarding the princess. Neither does he mention the redoubtable adventure of the armchair before detailed. The resentment of the envoy, Cudley, was not to be kept within bounds at the proceedings relative to Monmouth, and above all, at the public patronage offered by the Prince of Orange, both to the libeler, Jurieu, and to his libel on the father of the princess. And when he found that the princess went constantly to hear the sermons of this calumniator of her parent, the English envoy remonstrated with warmth sufficient for the Prince of Orange to insist on his recall, in which request he obliged his princess to join. The motive, however, that the prince and princess gave for this requisition was not the real one, but a slight affront on their dignity, such as hereditary sovereigns have often borne without even a frown. It was the carnival. The snow at the Hague was hard and deep. All the Dutch world were slaying in fanciful sledges and masked in various characters. Among others, the Princess of Orange being lately taken into the favor of her lord and master, he drove her on the snow in a sleigh, both were masked. The orange sleigh met that of the envoy Cudley, who refused to break the road, and the princely sledge had to give way before the equipage of the proud Englishman. The prince and princess both wrote complaints of Cudley's disrespect, and petitioned that he might be recalled. Cudley wrote likewise, giving his own version of the real cause of the offense, and of the inimical proceedings of the Dutch court against all who were devoted to the British sovereign. As for his alleged crime, he made very light of it, saying, that as the prince and princess were masked, which implied a wish to appear unknown, 
the ill-breeding and impertinence would have been in any way to have testified acquaintance with them that in fact he knew them not and that he was on the proper side of the road if the circumstance had happened to his own right royal master and mistress he should have done the same but they knew too well the customs of their rank to have taken offence as for recall he joined in the request for he could not stay at the hague to see and hear what he saw and heard daily the result was that cudley returned to england and bevel skelton was sent as envoy unfortunately he gave still less satisfaction to the orange party the prince of orange says deval knew not how to caress monmouth sufficiently balls and parties were incessantly given for him four or five days since he went alone with the princess of orange on the ice in a trainew to a house of the prince three leagues from the hague they dined there and it was the duke of monmouth that led out the princess he dined at table with the princess who before always ate by herself it was remarked that the princess who never was accustomed to walk on foot in public places was now forever promenading in the mall leaning on the arm of monmouth and that the prince formerly the most jealous person in existence suffered this gallantry which all the world noticed between the duke and his wife the gaiety at the court of the hague he continues is universal william himself set all the world dancing at the balls he gave and encouraged his guests and his wife by dancing himself he likewise obliged the princess to receive at her court and to countenance the duke of monmouth's mistress or secondary wife lady harriet wentworth the ill-treated heiress of buckleu monmouth's duchess and the mother of his children was alone in england she had been the most particular friend and companion of the princess of orange who ought therefore to have resented rather than encouraged any introduction to her injurious supplanter the duke of york wrote with unwonted sternness to his daughter remonstrating against these proceedings she shed tears on her father's letter but she answered that the prince was her master and would be obeyed eyewitnesses did not deem that the conduct of the princess was induced by mere obedience she was either partial to monmouth as her friend and correspondent the german duchess of orleans implies or she rushed into pleasure with the hilarity of a caged bird into the air if her seclusion had been as severe as the french ambassador declared it was she was glad of liberty and exercise on any terms at the conclusion of one of his letters of remonstrance her father bade her warn her husband that if the king and himself were removed by death from their path the duke of monmouth whatsoever the prince might think of his friendship would give them a struggle before they could possess the throne of great britain a dim light is thrown on the correspondence between james the second and his daughter by garbled extracts made by dr birch a chaplain of the princess anne some motive fettered his transcribing pen since letters apparently of the strongest personal interest furnish him but with a few words those for instance in january the twenty seventh sixteen eighty five a few days before the duke of york ascended the throne when he wrote to remonstrate with her on her extraordinary conduct with monmouth dr birch's brief quotation from this paternal reproof is that her father supposes she was kept in awe that from mary's answer denies being kept in awe her condition much happier than he believed 
All the noisy gaieties and rejoicings at the orange court were hushed and dispelled, as if by the sweep of an enchanter's wand, on the noon of February 10th, old style, 1685, when the tidings arrived of the death of Charles II, and the peaceable accession of the princess's father to the throne of Great Britain, as James II. Deval thus describes the change effected by the announcement of the news at the Palace of the Hague. Letters from England, of the 6th of February, old style, arrived here at seven this morning. They communicated the sorrowful tidings of the death of the King of England, Charles II. The Prince of Orange did not go into the chamber of his wife, where she was holding a court of reception for the ladies of the Hague. He sent a message, requesting her to come down and hear the news. The Duke of Monmouth came likewise, to listen to these dispatches. It is said, that Mary manifested deep affliction at the death of her uncle. Monmouth retired to his own lodging, and came to the prince at ten in the evening. They were shut up together till midnight sounded. Then Monmouth, the same night, left the Hague secretly, and so well was his departure hidden, that it was supposed at noon, the next day, that he was in bed. The Prince of Orange gave him money for his journey. To his daughter, James II announced his prosperous accession with the utmost warmth of paternal tenderness, to the Prince of Orange with remarkable dryness and brevity. The prince, who had never supposed that his father-in-law would ascend the British throne after the strong attempts to exclude him on account of his religion, found himself, if regarded as his enemy, in an alarming predicament. His first maneuver, in consequence, was to take out of his wife's hand the paternal letter sent to her by her father, and read it aloud to the assembled states of Holland, as if it had been written to himself. To James II, he wrote very humbly, declaring, that Monmouth only came as a suppliant, was shown a little common hospitality, and had been sent away. A glow of fervent enthusiasm, and a prostration of devotion, now marked his letters to James II. In one of his epistles, William says, Nothing can happen which will make me change the fixed attachment I have for your interests. I should be the most unhappy man in the world if you were not persuaded of it, and should not have the goodness to continue me a little in your good graces, since I shall be, to the last breath of my life, yours with zeal and fidelity. The usually affectionate correspondence between James II and his daughter Mary had now become interspersed with their differences of opinion on religion. The partialities of each were in direct opposition to the other, his for the Church of Rome. She frequented the worship of the Dutch dissenters. Neither had much regard for the true resting place between the two, the Reformed Church of England, as established at the period of the present translation of the scriptures. According to Dr. Birch's meager extracts, King James wrote to his daughter Mary, from Windsor, August 22nd, to express, his surprise to find her so ill-informed of the Bishop of London's behavior, both to the late king and to him, both as duke and king, as to write to him in his favor, that the bishop deserved no favor from him, and was far from having the true Church of England principles. In the answer of Mary, dated the 26th of August, she vindicated her former preceptor as a good and loyal man. 
an error fatal to himself was committed by james the second in complying with the request that his daughter was induced to join in by allowing henry sidney to return to the hague as the commander of the english forces which were lent to the prince of orange as a support equally against the ambition of france and the party in holland adverse to the stadtholdership for every officer who did not become a partisan of the views of the prince of orange on the throne of great britain was an object of persecution and was very glad to obtain his own dismission and return to england thus all who remained were the pledged agents of william's ambition since the departure of dr ken it was noticed that mary had attended more than ever the preachings of the french and dutch descent monmouth had accompanied her who had in his latter years manifested great partiality to the fatal sex the rash invasion of england by monmouth his nominal assumption of the royal dignity and his execution were events which followed each other with startling celerity it is evident from his own memoirs that james the second regretted being forced to put monmouth to death those who have read the proclamation in which monmouth calls his uncle the murderer and poisoner of charles the second will see that in publishing so unfounded a calumny he had rendered any pardon from james the second a self-accusation whether the mind of mary had been warped against her father by the party exiles who swarmed in holland or whether her motives were the more degrading ones attributed to her by her relative and correspondent elizabeth charlotte the second wife of philippe duke of orleans can scarcely be surmised but reasoning from facts and results it is evident that she never forgave her father the death of monmouth since the departure of dr ken it was impossible for the father of the princess to send any loyal person in any official capacity who could be endured at her court skelton the new envoy was liked still less than cudley a complete antipathy had subsisted between dr ken and william of orange but the dignity of character pertaining to the disinterested churchman had awed the prince from the practices to which he had recourse in order to discover what ken's successor dr Koval, thought of the married felicity of the princess and of the conduct of the persons composing the court at the hague truly in this proceeding the hero of nassau verified the proverb that eavesdroppers hear no good of themselves and assuredly the peepers into private letters deserve no more self-gratification than the listeners at keyholes the princess was at Deren, surrounded by the inimical circle of the villiers to whose aid a fourth their sister catherine had lately arrived from england and had married the marquis de Poussars, a french nobleman at the court of orange it was an allusion to the infamous elizabeth villiers which exasperated the dutch phlegm of william of orange into the imprudence of acknowledging the ungentlemanlike ways by which he had obtained possession of the quaint document written by his wife's almoner dr Koval. the prince had by some indirect means learned that the correspondence between Koval and skelton the envoy passed through the hands of dalon the secretary to the princess after obtaining and copying dr Koval's letter he sent it to lawrence hyde the uncle of the princess of orange accompanied by the following letter in french of which the following is a translation i had for some time suspected says the prince of orange that dr Koval was not a faithful servant to the princess 
The last time I was at The Hague, a letter fell into my hands, which he had written to Skelton, the ambassador. I opened it, and at my return to Deeren, where the doctor was with the princess, I took the doctor's cipher and deciphered it, as you will see by the copy annexed. The original, which I have, written and signed with his own hand, he acknowledged when I showed it to him. You will, no doubt, be surprised that a man of his profession could be so great a knave. The surprise is, however, greater to find that a prince who bore a character of heroism and even of magnanimity should first purloin a private letter, break the seal to espy the contents, then take the doctor's cipher. But how, unless his highness had picked the doctor's desk, his highness does not explain. And then continue his practices till he had labored out a fair copy of the letter, which, to complete his absurdity, he sent to the very parties that the old doctor especially wished should know how he treated his wife. There is no doubt but that James II and Clarendon were not a little diverted at the fact that the Prince of Orange had spent his time in making out a letter as complimentary to himself and court as the following. Dr. Koval to Mr. Skelton, the Ambassador. Deeren, October 5th or 15th, 1685. Your honor may be astonished at the news, but it is too true, that the princess's heart is like to break, and yet she, every day, with Mistress Jessen and Madame Zulestein, that is Mary Worth, counterfeits the greatest joy, and looks upon us as dogged as may be. We dare no more speak to her. The prince hath infallibly made her his absolute slave, and there is an end of it. I wish to God I could see the king give you some good thing for your life. I would have it out of the power of any revocation, for I assure you, I fear the prince will forever rule the roost. As for Mr. Cudley, if his business be not done beyond the power of the prince before the king, that is James II, die, he will be in an ill taking. But I wonder what makes the prince so cold to you. None but infamous people must expect any tolerable usage here. I beseech God preserve the king, that is James II, many and many years. I do not wonder much at the new Marchionesses, that is Catherine Villiers, behavior. It is so like the breed. We shall see the fine doings if we once come to town. What would you say if the princess should take her into the chapel, or in time, into the bedchamber? I cannot fancy the sisters, that is the Villiers, will long agree. You guess right about Mr. Delone, for he is secretary in that as well as in other private affairs. I fear I shall not get loose to meet you at Utrecht. It will not be a month before we meet at The Hague. I never so heartily long to come to The Hague. God send us a happy meeting. The princess is just now junketing with Madame Bentick, that is Anne Villiers and Mrs. Jessen in Madame Zulestein's chamber. Believe me, worthy sir, ever with all sincere devotion to be. Your honors, etc. Let me know how you were received at the Hof, that is court. This letter strongly corroborates the intelligence regarding the princess, transmitted by the French ambassador, de Val, for the information of his court, and is, moreover, corroborated itself by the previous remonstrances of Dr. Ken on the ill-treatment of Mary. Nor, when the strong family connections are considered of the intrigant Elizabeth Villiers, represented by old Dr. Koval, as surrounding the princess at all times, 
equally in her court and the privacy of her chamber, will his picture of the slavery to which she was reduced be deemed exaggerated. With Dr. Covell, a general clearance of all persons, supposed to be attached to the royal family in England, took place. They were all thrust out of the household of the princess. Bentick, whose wife is mentioned in Dr. Covell's letter, wrote an epistle to Sidney, saying, You will be surprised to find the changes at our court, for Her Royal Highness, Madame the Princess, on seeing the letter which the prince had got by chance, dismissed Dr. Covell without any further chastisement because of his profession, and as it was suspected that Mrs. Langford and Miss Trelawney had been leagued with him, Her Royal Highness, Madame the Princess, has sent them off this morning. The second chaplain, Langford, is also in this intrigue. I do not complain of the malice these people have shown in my case, continued Bentick. Seeing that they have thus betrayed their master and mistress, I beg that if you hear anyone speak of the sort of history they have charitably made at our expense, you will send us word, for they have reported as if we, Bentick and his wife, had failed of respect to Her Royal Highness, Madame the Princess, at our arrival at Hunslerdyke, and I should wish to know what is said. If Bentick and his master could have obtained Barillon's dispatches by some such accident as gave them possession of Dr. Covell's letter, they would have found that King James remarked, reasonably enough, on the incident. He said, that if the Prince of Orange really behaved like a true friend to him, and a good husband to his daughter, it was strange that he should be so enraged at her earliest friends and oldest servants, writing news, by the British resident, of her health and the manner of passing her time. The king alluded to the fact that Mrs. Langford was the nurse of his daughter Mary, whose husband, Mr. Langford, was one of her chaplains. Miss Trelawney, one of her ladies, had been a playfellow, whom the Princess Mary loved better than any one in the world. The princess suffered agonies when the Prince of Orange, suspecting that Miss Trelawney was among the disprovers of his conduct, forced her to return to England at this juncture. The Prince of Orange informed Lawrence Hyde, the uncle of the princess, that he left the punishment of Dr. Covell to his bishop, but he demanded of King James the dismissal of the envoy Skelton, for the queer letter already quoted, written to him by the said Dr. Covell, which, in fact, Skelton had never received, Hyde dryly replied, by the order of the king, that frequent changes were great impediments to business, and reminded him that the other envoy, Cudley, had been dismissed for a private misunderstanding. Skelton remained vainly writing to his royal master, calling his attention to the intrigues by which his son-in-law was working his deposition, receiving but little belief from James II, who either would not, or could not, suspect the faith of a son and daughter, when both of them were writing to him, letters apparently, of an affectionate and confidential kind, every post day. The Princess of Orange greatly exasperated the French ambassador, by the sympathy she manifested for his Protestant countrymen, he wrote to his court, January 3rd, 1686. Only two days ago, she told a story of a fire having been lighted under two young Protestant girls in France, who were thus made to suffer dreadful torments. The ambassador complained to the Prince of Orange, and requested him to restrain the princess from talking thus, but the prince coldly observed that he could not. 
Holland and England were then full of the refugees who had fled from the detestable persecutions in France. In this instance, James II and his daughter acted in unison, for he gave them refuge in England and relieved them with money and other necessaries. It is said that he sent word to remonstrate with Louis XIV on his cruelty. It was in the spring of 1686 that the Princess of Orange, by a manifestation of her conjugal fears, obtained from the States General the appointment of bodyguards to attend on her husband. To this event is annexed the following curious tale of a plot against the life or freedom of Mary's consort. The intention was to seize the Prince of Orange when taking the air on the dunes of Cheveling, to hurry him on board of a brig and place him in the power of Louis the Fourteenth. As the persons who affected to save the prince from this trap, Dr. Burnett and the informer, one Mr. W. Faucio, or Tassio, fell out with each other and gave different versions of the tale. Perhaps the plot itself was a mere scheme for obtaining a place in the good graces of the prince and princess of Orange. The person who gave the intelligence concerning it has at the same time drawn a description of the principal abode of Mary, and in some degree of her habits of life at this time. Shoveling is a sea village about two or three miles from the palace of the Hague, whither all people, from the rank of the prince and princess, to the lowest boar and boreen, take the air in fine weather on summer evenings. A stately long avenue leads to the dunes from the back of the Hague Palace Gardens, planted on each side with many rows of tall trees. The dunes, just like those at Yarmouth, are interspersed with portions of beautiful tuft of the arenaria or sea beach grass. The rest is a desert of deep loose sand where the roots of this grass do not bind it. Consequently, a heavy carriage with horses always would have great difficulty in traversing the road, which was very troublesome towards the north dunes. The Prince of Orange, wrote the informer of the plot, would often go with a chariot, drawn by six horses, in the cool of a summer's evening, to take air for two hours, along the seashore, with only one person in the carriage with him. And in order to avoid all troublesome salutation, he went northward a great way, beyond where the other carriages did walk, none of which dared follow him, so that he was almost out of sight. An agent of the King of France went to lie in wait with two boats on the Cheveling beach, each manned with armed desperadoes. And when the Dutch prince's carriage was slowly plowing its way among the sand dunes, the men were to march to surround the prince, who, being thus enclosed between the two gangs, was to be taken, rowed off to a brig of war under Dutch colors, and carried to France. This notable scheme was attributed to a Count Farrell or Fennel, an Italian officer in a French regiment, who had been banished from France for killing his enemy in a duel. This man told his scheme to Anfacio Artacio, then a youth, the son of the man with whom he lodged at Duvilliers, and this youth told Dr. Burnett of the scheme in traveling from Geneva. By a providential concatenation of small accidents, Dr. Burnett had met the confidant of the conspirators of The Plot, and with this witness of its reality, he traveled to Holland. Thus, on Burnett's first arrival at The Hague, he had this plot to communicate, for which purpose he demanded a private audience of the princess, to whom he at length declared the conspiracy. 
The princess immediately, in great alarm, desired that it should be communicated to Fagel, the pensionary, and the states general, and on that account, by her earnest solicitation, a bodyguard was appointed for the Prince of Orange, which he ever after retained, like any other sovereign prince. It seems very strange in this story that the conspiring count should have trusted his intentions several months before this scheme was ready to this young man who happened to be traveling from geneva where he happened to encounter burnett who happened to be traveling to holland and in due time communicated the alarming tale to the princess whose conjugal care occasioned the first appointment of her husband's bodyguards a step greatly adverse to the terms on which he held his stadtholdership and savoring strongly of royal power and dignity the author of the story, M. Facio, in his memorial, published for the purpose of exposing some falsehoods of his quondam ally, complains much of the ingratitude, both of William and Burnett. What became of the count, on whom the scheme of concocting the plan was laid, is not mentioned. James II sent his friend, William Penn, the illustrious philanthropist, to his daughter and her husband, in January 1686, to convince them, by his eloquence, of the propriety of abolishing all laws tending to persecution. A Dutch functionary of the name of Dykvelt was long associated with the benevolent Quaker in this negotiation. Penn, says Devau, wrote with his own hand a long letter, averring, that many of the bishops had agreed that these penal laws were cruel and bad and ought to be annulled on which the prince declared, he would lose all the revenues and reversion of the kingdom of Great Britain, to which his wife was heiress, before one should be abolished. The princess, as devout, echoes his words, but much more at length, and with such sharpness, that the Marquis de Abbeville, who was devout's informant, and was present, was much astonished at her tone and manner. Among other expressions, she said, that if ever she was Queen of England, she should do more for the Protestants than even Queen Elizabeth. When Mary perceived the impression she had made on Abbeville by her answer to Penn, she modified her manner in discussing with him the differences between her father's views and her own, adding in a more moderate, and at the same time, more dignified tone. I speak to you, sir, with less reserve, and with more liberty than to the king, my father, by reason of the respectful deference which I am obliged to entertain for him and his sentiments. William Penn, on this mission, incurred the enmity of the Princess of Orange, which endured through her life. The practical wisdom and justice which he had shown, as the founder of a prosperous colony, under the patronage of James, when Duke of York, ought to have made the heiress of the British Empire consider herself under inestimable obligations to the illustrious man of peace. The Prince of Orange was less violent than his wife in the matter, and astutely endeavored to bargain with Penn as the price of his consent. That James should allow his daughter a handsome pension of 48,000 pounds per annum as heiress of the British throne. James II was rich and free from debt, either public or private, but he demurred on this proposition, saying, he must first ascertain clearly that this large income, if he sent it out of the country, would not be used against himself. It has been shown that Dr. Burnett's first introduction to the princess was on account of a plot he had discovered against the liberty of the Prince of Orange. 
he became from that time extremely intimate at the court of Orange, an intimacy that excited the displeasure of James II. The extracts are meagre from the king's letter to his daughter. They are as follows. In a letter dated from Whitehall, November 23rd, 1686, he spoke of Burnett as a man not to be trusted and an ill man. December 7th, he complained of Burnett as a dangerous man, though he would seem to be an angel of light. King James added this description, allowing his enemy the following qualities. That Burnett was an ingenious man, meaning in the parlance of that century, a man of genius, of a pleasant conversation, and the best flatterer he ever knew. The princess replied to her father from The Hague, December 10th, in a letter full of Burnett's praises. End of section 21